welcome Neil. election week everybody this is going to be a riot manufacturing dissent since 1996 this is hell the war on terror never ended as president barack obama wanted us to believe and it didn't wind down under president trump as he had promised in fact the war on terror ramped up to all-time levels of destruction when it comes to drone attacks in yemen and the deadly effects on civilians on the ground there no trump's tough guy take the gloves off approach that he campaigned on Rallying his rabid base to hating the other more than ever. No, that did not work. In fact, it blew up in our faces as well as our allies in Yemen. Trump's macho, kick-ass approach even undermined the ability of locals to encourage al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula members to quit the group. Under Trump, it wasn't enough to renounce al-Qaeda or even provide damning information and intelligence on the organization to get you off the hit list, which kind of disincentivizes leaving al-Qaeda, which is what the U.S. and the people in Yemen want them to do. Not that we know exactly what is happening in Yemen, as the war is so secret that it seems the CIA or other covert military operations are involved in pretty much running the show. What we do know is U.S. drone strikes are happening, civilians are being killed, and both are being underreported. And yes, the war on terror, the forever war, does go on. We'll try to do our best to figure out what the U.S. is doing in Yemen, to Yemen, when we speak with Middle East and North African analyst and researcher Mohammed Al-Jumali, co-author of the Air Wars Report, Ending Transparency, U.S. Counterterrorism Actions in Yemen, under President Trump, which he co-wrote with Ned Ray. Air Wars is a collaborative not-for-profit organization focused on reducing battlefield civilian casualties. Air Wars tracks, documents, and archives air war-dominated military actions and local reports of civilian harm and conflict zones. Presently, covering Iraq, Syria, Libya, as well as U.S. counterterrorism actions in Somalia, Yemen, and Pakistan, Air Wars provides a vital counter-narrative to the dominant military assertion that civilian deaths are low in modern warfare. You can find out more about Air Wars at airwars.org, and you can follow Air Wars on Twitter, at Air Wars. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, or I should say, if it's Monday, it must be Daphne Augustin. Daphne, how was your weekend? Hi, Chuck. Uh, my weekend was okay. I just worked all weekend. You, usually your weekend is always better than mine. You went to the David Graeber uh, <laughs> yeah. m- Memorial the first week. Then you were reading on radical feminism. Then you voted in the Chilean plebiscite. And all I ever do is just sit around my house and sit around in pain and drink booze. And So <laughs> how, did, how was our coverage last uh, Thursday uh, with Bree Buska and her writing from Roar Magazine on the Chilean plebiscite about the new constitution in uh, Chile? What would you think? Um... I I mean I even learned stuff and yeah it was great keep keep reading her everyone so it's not so bad that we're talking to just some everyday american who's in chile should we be talking I mean, to- you know she talked about chileans as we and i don't know if you knew but after 5 years as a foreigner in chile you can vote um even if you don't have the citizenship so that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a good sign that she's saying we. That's yeah. a good point. Uh, also, my weekend. Oh, same as always. So we celebrated the weekend by ordering in, cleaning the house, working on the show, going for five-mile walks, hanging out in the kitchen, cooking, drinking beer, doing bong rips. That's basically my, what my weekend is, almost every weekend. More importantly, Daphne, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what happens... <laughs> I just love how it just ends. What happens? And then there's a map of the United States with all of the electoral college totals on them. All answers will be read on air this week. But if you want to win a special prize, you got to get your accurate prediction on 
what happens on election night to us by 5 p.m. U.S. Central Time Tuesday, tomorrow night. So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, which we will be announcing at the end of Thursday's show, wins our new Graham Black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new Graham Black This Is Hell t-shirt and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for your support. And the person who has the most accurate answer sent into us by 5 p.m. Central tomorrow, Tuesday, also wins a new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt. So we are giving away two t-shirts, one for our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, and then one, two, <laughs> one, two, and then another to the person who has the most accurate answer to this week's question from hell. Again, this week's question from hell is, what happens? What happens? You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at com. But we must have your answer for the accuracy prize by Tuesday at 5 p.m. And for our favorite answer to this week's question mail by the end of Thursday's show. Daphne will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is, what happens? What happens? All answers read on air this week, but if you want to win that special prize, get your accurate prediction to us by 5 p.m. U.S. Central Time tomorrow. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Daphne, I believe you have this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is... Pear, sweet lime, and coconut water. According to a 2019 study published in the journal Current Research in Food Science in late 2019, a team investigated the effects of different foods on increasing the rate of alcohol metabolism by seeing how each food affected the activity of two enzymes, which start the pathway to processing alcohol in the body. From all the foods tested, the researchers developed an anti-hangover product using pear, sweet lime, and coconut water, which was found to enhance both enzymes. Furthermore, the study showed no correlation between the antioxidant property of foods and the enzyme activities, contradicting the previous thought that antioxidants are a hangover cure. That makes this week's hangover cure pear, sweet, lime, and coconut water, and definitely not antioxidant cures, because because it's all about the enzymes. It's all about the enzymes, so screw all those stupid antioxidants I see on the store shelves all the time. Oh, I hate the way you stare at me. Putting profits before people since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to contribute to our humble and very horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to support completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Sure, you can get the This Is Hell face mask or trucker's cap or t-shirt or tote bag or coffee mug or a flash drive of... This is the history of the 21st century according to how we've seen it so far and covered it so far here on This Is Hell. And we got a new winter cap and hoodie that's going to be posted soon, so you'll want to go back and check on those. But you can also become a subscriber to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can now find over 150 Patreon podcasts Right now, that's right, that's how we finish our week every week, every Friday with a brand new Patreon podcast. It's like an additional year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else but on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, we shared our 2006 interview on Bolivia with historian and journalist Ben Dangle, author of The 500-Year Rebellion, which is a history of Bolivia. Ben was on shortly after Evo Morales became president of Bolivia, so it's a look back at the very optimistic future that people around the world had for Bolivia at the time. If you then want a real- reality check of what actually happened, then go back and listen to our interview from last Wednesday with Brett Gustafson, author of Bolivia in an Age of Gas. Listen to those two back-to-back, and you can just listen to history change over 15 years and how people change, how policies change, how movements change, how perspectives change. Also on Patreon, I gave my prediction as to what will happen with this year's presidential election. 
And it's not only who will I think win the election, but also the reasons for my prediction and my guess as to what the fallout from the vote might be and what I hope it could be and will be. So what, whether, you're plan, whether you plan on arrogantly gloating without, with, about an election, let me read that again. So whether you plan on arrogantly gloating about an election victory or cowering in fear while trembling with outrage Tuesday night, prepare yourself by listening to my bold prediction on what will happen election night and moving forward by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell and hearing my prediction, which you can only hear exclusively on Patreon. Don't worry. I get predictions as wrong as often as I get them right, so does it really matter what my prediction is? It sure does. Go to patreon.com slash thisishell and find out what it is. Not only is This Is Hell completely listener-supported, we do not take any advertising or grant money of any kind, and we are not a not-for-profit because we are so not-for-profit that we do not have the kinds of profits to afford the legal fees to become a not-for-profit. But we are also listener-supported when it comes to guest suggestions and ideas for topics to cover here on the show, for the actual content of our show. You can email your suggestions and ideas to chuck at thisishell.com like Martin did this weekend. Martin writes, Dear Chuck and Alex, I have a great suggestion for you. I think it would be a great idea to have David Harvey, author of A Companion to Marx's Capital, on your show. His book analyzes and explains all three volumes of Capital in a way that allows the average idiot to understand sort of, Marx's ideas. I really feel that without a Cliff Notes-like volume to refer to, a lot of people are going to give up on reading Marx's works because his writing style is full of overly technical jargon and vague explanations. I'm sorry, but a person shouldn't need to get a frickin' PhD in philosophy, economics, etc. in order to become a socialist. All the best, Martin in Chicago. Martin, while I think uh, David Harvey has been our guest on our guest list you know, a potential targeted guest list since, I don't know, way back in 1996, maybe even. I, I really have no idea if anyone on our show has ever actually tried to or reached out to him. I may have. I don't remember. We've been doing this show for 25 years now. It's kind of hard to remember. But yeah, he would be a great guest for the show. And as I am an average idiot who does not have any PhD in anything, you make a good point, Martin. Too often revolutionary ideas, like science, for whatever reason, they're very poorly explained to the layman. So let's see if Alex can book David Harvey, because I'm guessing that will be a tough get. Word get is a media term I loathe. I hope I will never speak again on these airways. My apologies. Also, Martin, stay tuned in, because uh, not only are we going to have someone on to talk Marxism this week, because it's election week and we thought that that would be a good way to celebrate, being election week, we thought that would be an appropriate thing to do because, you know, this is not the media. But we got your other email, Martin, on a very different topic, and we will be sharing that as well. You can send your guest suggestions and topic ideas to chuck at thisishell.com, as Martin did, as many of our other listeners have. And if we have your guest suggestion on the show as a guest or discuss your topic, we will thank you on air. It is literally the least we can do, aside from not thinking you on air at all. But that would just be rude. This is hell coming up. The U.S. war on terror is far from over and continues killing civilians in Yemen. We will also have rotten history and tell you the rest of this week's guests. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. President Obama said the war on terror was over and the bombing of Yemen and killing of civilians continued. President Trump said he would take the gloves off in the war on terror once elected. He did, and the strategy failed. What hasn't failed is the level of secrecy that is imposed upon the U.S. war in Yemen. Here to help us try to figure out what's going on in Yemen and try to get us through this veil of secrecy, Middle East and North African analyst researcher Mohammed Al-Jamali is co-author of the Air Wars Report, Eroding Transparency, U.S. Counterterrorism Actions in Yemen under President Donald Trump, which he co-wrote with Ned Ray. You can find out more about Air Wars at airwars.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Mohammed. 
Hi, Chuck. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. You write that for almost two decades, scrutiny of U.S. counterterrorism actions in Yemen has been impeded by secrecy, particularly where civilian harm is reported. How much do you think that secrecy keeps the U.S. public via the media unaware of what is happening in Yemen? Can we blame the media or do you rest all of this on the government's, on the state's responsibility, their fault? Yeah, I mean it's a it's it's an interesting uh, question. I think um, I think of course, uh, as we highlight in the report, um, the U.S.'s involvement in Yemen is shrouded by secrecy. Um, they are uh, traditionally they have just not been very uh, the U.S. at least has not been uh, upfront about its. Uh, uh, its actions in Yemen. Um, so of course that that obscures, you know, uh, people's understanding of what's actually going on. Um, obviously, there there is a you know on on the flip side, of course, the media, um, especially when it's not an active conflict. Um, of course, in Yemen there is currently an active conflict, but at least U.S.'s uh, counterterrorism uh, uh, campaign in 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 Yemen is not considered an active. Uh, 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 war as such um they often yeah uh, media interest tends to tends to be very tends to be sporadic um which means that at least in at least western media uh which means that yeah a lot of people just just really don't know what's going on and i think yeah part of the the research that we've been doing uh is trying to center yemeni voices because they're the ones who are you know living that reality every day uh, and they're the ones who are actually reporting it um so so yeah i think uh i think of course yeah it's, it's you know you know you can, it, 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 it's 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 both you know it's both western media and and of course yeah the the level of secrecy um that that the campaign has afforded um yeah by by the us it also just reminds me of, you know, another controversy that's going on when it comes to local journalism far too often. Uh, the police sources are listened to when it comes to an act of police violence. And very often, very rarely do you hear from the witnesses or those who are victimized, maybe because their lawyer tells them to or not. But it just reminded me of almost the exact same thing. Here you have a situation where uh, the police in this situation are the military and they are giving their uh, story, their side of the story, their side of the narrative on what is happening on the ground. Is the issue then not necessarily uh, the media's lack of reporting or the government's lack of uh, oversight of the situation or even the government's amount of secrecy? Is the real issue the lack of prioritizing of Yemeni voices or the voices of victims in any kind of war? I mean, with, with something like this, there's there's a number of issues and uh, it's, it's probably difficult to say which one is the most uh, important or I think they're all they're all important. Um, yeah, definitely um, uh, not centering Yemeni voices um, uh, in stories about obviously issues that affect Yemenis, which is you know obviously the the, the counterterrorism campaign uh, in Yemen. Um, of course, that is an issue. Obviously, you know people aren't gonna aren't gonna know what's going on in the country if. Uh, um, if the only if the only people reporting it are Yemenis and they don't have access to you know Yemeni local news outlets or um, or aren't actively tracking um, what's going on like like we do, um, so yeah I think uh, I think that's you know that's that's definitely a that's definitely a factor but of course the the lack of transparency um, that uh, that the US campaign has has been afforded of course plays a plays a massive role. Um, and CENCOM does have uh, um, an obligation to track and monitor um, civilian harm uh, in the conflict it's involved in. Um, and yeah, of course, like um, yeah, the, the lack of attention um, uh, that these that these uh, conflicts are, are afforded in in Western media as well. I mean, it it it, it all it, it kind of all. Uh, uh, plays into one another. It's 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 all kind of symbiotic, um, uh, yeah. And 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 it's it's what it's what it's what kind of leads to that more uh, leads to more secrecy or, or lack of understanding of what's going on. Um, I think the average, you know, the average Joe would probably wouldn't know that there is 
that there's a, a counterterrorism campaign going on in Yemen. Um, and it's because of all those reasons, really. And I was thinking about maybe another reason would be because there's this sense that the war on terror is over. You write a CIA-targeted assassination in 2002 of, of five Al-Qaeda-linked suspects in the USS Cole terror attack was the only known kinetic intervention of, by George W. Bush in Yemen during his pres- presidency. However, the means of that attack, a targeted precision airstrike involving remotely piloted armed drones overseen not by the U.S. military but by a covert civilian intelligence agency, ushered in a defining and controversial theme of the war on terror, which persists to today. But President Barack Obama announced on May 23, 2013, that the global war on terror was over, that military and intelligence agencies will not wage war against terror, but will instead focus on a specific group of networks determined to destroy the U.S. So is the war on terror, in your opinion, how has, I guess more importantly, how has it changed? How has the war on terror changed since Obama made that statement, and do you think that that change has led people to believe that the war on terror, like the war in Yemen, just don't exist anymore? Um, yeah, I mean, um, so so the U.S.'s uh, covert, uh, or the, the U.S.'s drone campaign started in earnest in 2009 um, against uh, al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. Um and since then, it's, it, it, it kind of, um, uh, yeah, it, it carried on. It never really stopped um, from 2009 right until uh, right until this day. Um, in terms of how the war on terror has, has changed, of course, I mean, you know, it's it's such a, a it, it, the whole war on terror is, is, is so broad. It covers it covers you know from yeah from yemen and from of course from uh, isis in iraq and syria um as well as its its other um uh its its other affiliates in in the region um so in terms of in terms of how the actual um uh targeting of uh, of of let's say al qaeda in yemen is um uh and in terms of that it hasn't really changed much um it, it's still it's still going on. Um, I think what something that we have observed um, is that, in, of course, in 2017 there was a uh, in in Trump's first year um, there was a huge increase um, in uh, in U.S. actions in Yemen, uh, and that's down to you know relax, the relaxation of rules of engagement as well as other other reasons that we cite, um, and. Uh, yeah, and and I think I think since then um, there has been uh, there there has been a, quite a significant deterioration uh, deterioration of uh, transparency um, and accountability when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to U.S. actions in in Yemen in particular, um, such that it almost it almost denies that it's going on. I mean, we we spoke to Sencom. Um, uh, we, we're, we're in regular contact with Sencom and um, asking them uh, when they're late, when the um, when the last uh, U.S. action took place, and they still say it's July 2019. Our data shows that actually, since then, there have been at least 30 strikes, 15 of which we we've assessed through our methodology as likely U.S. strikes. Um, now that that could be that 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 could be um of course cia actions are we, are we you know it's a reasonable assumption that it probably is cia actions and that cia have kind of taken uh maybe control over that or or, or asserted more control over over the counterterrorism campaign rather than sencom and that's probably why sencom are saying that um but it just shows how it's it's treated as if it it doesn't really exist which yeah um which, which we know is, is, is actually probably not the case. So how much less accountable is the U.S.? How much, uh, how much uh, less oversight do we have how, when it comes to this war in Yemen when the attacks are taken over by the CIA? Do we simply not know what is happening in Yemen today because we have shifted the responsibility of those attacks on to the CIA and away from the Department of Defense and CENTCOM? Yeah, I mean, obviously, not, none of this has been none of this is official about whether 
whether responsibility is, is now is now shifted towards CIA or CENCOM. Uh, these are just some of the assumptions that some that, that commentators and lawyers have made, and, and, and I guess it's it's possibly supported by uh, by our research um, in, in some ways. Um, but yeah, I mean that that essentially means that these these strikes aren't just won't be reported and won't be disclosed. Um, so yeah, that 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 does that does impede on uh, on accountability and uh, um, and on transparency and yeah, I mean, it, it means that to the general public, people won't really know what's you know what's actually taking place, what's actually going on, um, unless they again unless they they listen to local Yemenis who who tell you that no you know there is a there was a drone strike here there was a you know there was an attack there. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, in, we we've noted three examples of when um, in 2020 when uh, uh, when U.S. officials have essentially confirmed, um, well, actually two two examples and one almost certainly as well, uh, where the where U.S. officials have essentially confirmed that um, a strike has taken place despite Sencom saying that they didn't conduct a strike, uh, which gives which which makes it fairly clear that it, it must be the CIA conducted those strikes. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, to to the average person, this can be quite confusing. Um, uh, there isn't that kind of straight, clear kind of understanding of of exactly what's going on. Um, yeah. Did the did the spike that happened in attacks in 2017, once President Trump took office, it was that a continuation of a policy that had already been put in place, a plan that had already been put in place by the Obama administration? To what extent could those who are supporters or those who are apologists for the Trump administration say that that, that spike was merely due to a continuation of Obama blaming whatever problems that may have happened during those airstrikes on the Obama administration, not as any failure of the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, like, um, so 2016 um, definitely saw an expanded, uh, an expanded um, uh, drone campaign against, uh, against uh, Al-Qaeda in Yemen uh, under Obama. Um, and that was, Partly because um, AQAP were gaining steam and they were um, uh, they were controlling territory and uh, and the US wanted to obviously stop that. Um, however, because of how substantial the rise has been in the, the rise was, sorry, uh, in 2017, I think it's difficult to really. I mean, it's it's it's, it's kind of I mean it's it's kind of difficult to to just uh to essentially say that that's the only reason that it was just they were just expand they were just uh, carrying on a, a a policy that was already in place under obama um of course our our data mainly our data covers uh, uh trump uh we haven't actually assessed um obama yet um although we hope to to re- to review and assess uh um all strikes under obama as well hopefully by and release and release the data for that um uh, by uh, sometime in the new year, um, but it is clear there was a, a substantial increase in 2017, the likes of which is it's not even comparable to to, to previous years. Um, so that suggests that, that that there's probably another reason for it. And from uh, speaking to uh, speaking to experts and, and people uh, uh, and people who who know the the in a processes and mechanisms of uh, of how these strikes are conducted um it's clear that uh that the rules of engagement were, were well firstly the rules of engagement were were definitely relaxed um and secondly um there were three provinces in Yemen which were declared areas of active hostility uh which meant that um which which meant that uh, the uh, the military didn't need to go through a, the, the, a kind of long uh, process of executive approval to conduct strike to conduct strikes, which meant that, um, which meant that, um, yeah, you, you'd see that that massive increase. That's probably a better explanation for than 
or just inheriting a previous campaign. But but there but there is no doubt that that under Obama there was um, there was an expansion. I think if you compare the strikes from 2016, for example, from 2014, um, there was I think a 110 percent increase in strikes. Um, so there was there was definitely an increase, um, but it's not not to the same level. Um, uh, not to the same, like it's not even comparable to 2016, 2017. So, what explained that increase at the time? Was there an increased national security threat? You point out that there's so much of the politics when it comes to domestic politics, United States domestic politics when it comes to Yemen policy. So, to you, what explains that ramp up in bombings within Yemen in 2016, a campaign year? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I, I, as I said, uh, AQAP were, were definitely uh, were gaining steam. Um, uh, it was noted as, as essentially like the high point of their uh, um, uh, uh, activity in Yemen. Um, so, uh, not just 2016, 2015 and 16 after the civil war. Um, when things just became quite chaotic in in Yemen, um, and obviously these kind of groups they thrive in that chaos, um, so um, so of course that would have I imagine would have probably served as a motivation or as a reason to to increase strikes. Um, apart from my, apart from my, if there are any other reasons for that, I you know I'm not really in a position to say. I don't really know. Um, uh, yeah, so I th- I think you know from from that standpoint there was a yeah it was you know it it was it was probably because of that um, but yeah um, one of the things so that, that- and, and that was assessed to be yeah a national you know an increase in national security threat uh, essentially at the time now whether it was or wasn't of course it's up to debate um, it's up for debate but yeah. So, uh, and one of the things that uh, President Trump, or camp at the time, candidate Trump was campaigning on, was that when he took office, he was going to do a couple of things. One thing he was going to do was end the war on terror, but also he was going to take the uh, gloves off and end the war on terror by finally extinguishing all of who he perceived to be his enemies. He did apply, according to your writing, he did apply the uh, taking the gloves off when it comes to Yemen. How did, in 2017... What was the impact of taking the gloves off on the ground? Do you think that the United States may have learned a lesson from taking the gloves off on the ground in Yemen to apply to other places? Uh, would you be able to actually clarify that? How do you mean taking the gloves off? Just so I can, just so I understand exactly what you're trying to say. Uh, Trump was saying that he was going to go in full force militarily. He was no longer going to worry about any kind of diplomatic measures. He was going to bomb wherever he thought there were any Al Qaeda camps, whether those camps either existed anymore or their targets were no longer member of Al Qaeda. Yeah, I mean, like in 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 2017, uh, yeah, you definitely saw that kind of uh, almost, yeah, it was it was a really intense period of uh, of U.S. action, and uh, and that was large. So under Obama, um, uh, it was known that there was quite a long procedure for for getting uh, strikes approved. That doesn't necessarily mean that. That they, you know, that they were always uh, there were many strikes which led to, you know, to a lot of devastation, civilian uh, among civilian communities. But still, there was this long process um, of trying to get approval for specific strikes. Um, that essentially, that process was essentially uh, um, no longer essentially no longer needed, especially after after those um, areas in Yemen, uh, the, those areas which uh, which saw. A high presence of uh, of um, of Al Qaeda militants. Uh, once they were dis- declared as uh, areas of active uh, hostility, that whole process kind of went out the window, um, and uh, meant that it meant that that the U.S. military had essentially had a freer reign in uh, in conducting the strikes it, it deemed to be um, uh, yeah in, in conducting actions it, it deemed to uh, be targeting uh, AQAP, um, 
without a real due process of okay how you know what's what's the uh, uh, what's the level of civilian harm that could that could come uh, from from a particular action or is is this a um, is this strike necessarily uh, um, uh, essential to uh, uh, to protecting U.S. interests and U.S. Uh, um, national security? Um, yeah, that that process kind of seemed to be almost ignored after that, um, from what was yeah from, from what we understand at least but how possible is it is it impossible even to eliminate civilian deaths in combat zones is the united states doing everything they can in order to avoid civilian deaths in combat zones yeah i mean i mean of course it's uh, it's, it's it's always it's always difficult um uh i think uh yeah, it's it's you know, whenever you're engaging in uh, in that kind of um, in a conflict like that, and especially um, yeah, especially without knowing, without having enough intel or enough understanding of uh, of, of local communities, it's very easy to 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 mistake a you know an Al Qaeda militant for a tribesman, you know, for example. And that happens so often, and that happens. That's that's been like a you know almost a recurring theme since since the beginning of the campaign. Um, I think I think the most important thing is you know apart from apart from actively doing everything that's possible to minimize and to prevent um, to prevent civilian harm um, uh, is to at least have a, a transparent and accountable process such that. When something like that does happen, those families are potentially compens- compensated. Um, uh, the, in this case, the American public are, are aware and, and know what's going on. Um, uh, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think there, there's a lot that can be done in order to in order to, to, to make sure that that civilians are protected um, and that um, and that engaging in these kind of in these kind of conflicts um, won't you know will lead to the minimum amount of civilian harm possible I think there's there's always a lot a lot that can be done um, yeah we are speaking with Middle East and North African analyst and researcher Mohammed Jumaili co-author of the Air Wars report Ending Transparency U.S. Counterterrorism Actions in Yemen under President Donald Trump, which he wrote with Ned Ray. You can find out more about Air Wars at airwars.org, and you can follow Air Wars on Twitter at Air Wars. You mentioned the May 2000 and I think it's 2010, I believe it is, drone strike that killed Jaber el-Shabwani, the deputy governor of Marib Governate and a prominent tribal sheikh after the U.S. was fed poor intelligence that, that suggested he was collaborating with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Shabwani was, in fact, reportedly attempting to strike a deal for local AQAP militants to surrender. As a result, the killing of Shabwani resulted in a significant backlash that only served to entrench anti-American sentiment within the the local population. The Trump administration's escalation of military action in Yemen has, it is claimed, further exacerbated these failings right from the first U.S. actions authorized under his presidency. So, in your estimation, are U.S. actions in Yemen then helping U.S. national security or hurting it? Are U.S. actions undermining the U.S.'s own mission in Yemen, or are they progressing it, moving it forward? Yeah, I mean it's a that's that's a good question, um, and it's of course the yeah the million dollar question as you say. Um, uh, I think that there are two there are two sides to this. So, so firstly, in terms of uh, the evidence of whether um, uh, U.S. actions have been effective in undermining AQAP and ISIS as well in Yemen, um, there's a lot of evidence to show that that yeah it, it probably has actually. Um, from the number of belligerents that have been uh, that have been killed, um, to the fact that um, ISIS um, communications and, and coordination has been has been severely disrupted. Um, uh, of course, ISIS in, in Yemen as well had, was was significantly weakened following the the two uh, strikes um, 
uh, on their camps in, in October 2017. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, and I, I, in the report, we, as part of the report, we spoke to a Yemen expert, um, Elizabeth Kendall, who, who talks about how um, the US campaign has uh, potentially, at um, directly, led to uh, the group splintering because 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 the militants found it so difficult to 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 you know meet up or or, or, to, or to organize meetings or, or plan or because uh, because they're because they're under the under that kind of pressure and under the the radar of uh, of these US uh, drones. Um, so so in one aspect, yet yeah, you know one can say that they have uh, degraded um, AQAP. Uh, it doesn't mean they don't exist. It doesn't mean they're still not a threat. They still are. Um, in fact, the last few months have seen seen uh, um, an increased number of uh, of uh, um, of attacks by uh, <coughs> by uh, um, Al Qaeda, um, mainly against Houthis. Um, but it shows that they they still do exist. Whether you know it hasn't completely gone rid of them. Now the the flip side is of course the impact on the ground, the impact on communities, the impact on um, on uh, perceptions of, of of the U.S. and and hostility towards the U.S. on the ground. Um, you know, in, especially in in the case that you cited uh, in, in our report. Um, yeah, in, in in those kind of cases where where local Yemenis are trying to uh, are trying to counter AQAP through dialogue or through through other means, and then you have a U.S. drone strike that comes in and essentially undermines that. Of course, it creates that kind of you know there's potential it could create that kind of resentment and that could possibly and and, and we've seen that could uh, drive recruitment. So so it's, it's it's kind of like a double-edged sword, really. Um, uh, yeah, and and it, it kind of. It does speak to maybe a lack of understanding of the tribal dynamics in Yemen and the dynamics between Yemeni tribes and you know militant groups and uh, the relationship they have and and kind of the and 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 essentially the the role that they could play in actually undermining AQAP probably even more significantly than uh, than um, than the blunt instrument of of airstrikes and uh, military action. So to, to answer your question, <laughs> I mean, there's no real simple answer, but um, on the one hand, yeah, it's 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 been quite effective in in, in taking out uh, um, high-level targets. Um, uh, on the other hand, it's 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 also undermined local efforts, and it's and it's had a, you know, it's it's a lot of Yemeni tribes and communities have have become resentful because of because of these strikes, um, and of course, if you see if you look at, I mean, if you know, if you look at AQAP uh, um, uh, propaganda, they they play into that all the time. They play into the fact that oh, U.S. drone strikes are are, are killing Yemenis and killing uh, are, are targeting Yemenis and not you know um, Yemeni civilians and Yemeni tribes and they play into that a lot. So you know, yeah, it is a double-edged sword in that, in that regard. You write a targeted attack on a reportedly reformed al-Qaeda member would seem to constitute new and troubling territory for the U.S. armed drone program, since the killing of such individuals would appear to be outside the scope of the Authorization for the Use of Military Force Act of 2001, long used to justify U.S. actions uh, in theaters such as Yemen. So why should... American citizens, why should we back here in the United States be concerned that the United States is now working outside of the authorization for the use of Military Force Act of 2001 that has been justifying U.S. military actions since 9-11? Why should we be concerned about the U.S. government and the U.S. military working outside of that authorization? Well, obviously, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's just obviously a, a slippery slope. Um if working outside of these kind of uh, uh, these kind of regulations or parameters means that essentially what's what's stopping the U.S. military from doing anything or from uh, from from just killing whoever it likes? Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it again it again um, obscures what's you know uh, um, 
what's legal and what's not, what's, you know, what's uh, the extent to which uh, uh, the U.S. can carry out um, actions and, 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 and that, and, and when, and I think when you, when you, when you kind of disregard the, these kind of parameters and these kind of uh, laws, um, usually, uh, I mean, again, it all go back. It all goes back to civilians. Civilians could could be caught up in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the midst of all that, and um, they could be harmed from all that. So, um, of course, it is it is of it is of concern for those who you know who who want a, a more ethical um, uh, U.S. foreign policy or, uh, you know, um, uh, um, involvement or um, abroad, then, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a significant concern. Just a couple more questions for you. Um, you write that for Yemen, allegations of civilian harm from U.S. actions are still assessed by CENTCOM itself. However, senior officials conceded to air wars in mid-2020 that there is at present no formally constituted civilian casualty assessment cell at Tampa, where the headquarters for CENTCOM is, and the that, act, uh, that civilian casualty claims for Yemen are reviewed on an ad hoc basis. Do you think the United States is using the pandemic as cover to hide civilian casualties or not report on them? Or is this just typical of how the whole process has been going when it comes to the U.S. supporting on civilian casualties that may be linked to U.S. airstrikes in Yemen? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's quite difficult for me to say whether um, uh, whether. uh, the pandemic has has an impact on that, or whether they're, they're using that as a cover. Um, I think what we've seen is that there, there has been um, slowly but surely a deterioration in the level of uh, um, um, accountability um, and 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 um, yeah, and, and, and transparency um, uh, by Sencom on uh, on its uh, actions in Yemen. Um, yeah, I, th- I think uh, um, I think the fact that it doesn't have a constituted civilian casualty cell probably. Sh- I mean, it's it's you know it it does point to that. It does point to the fact that um, uh, that that kind of transparency is just um, is is just no longer uh, it's just no longer there. How much more or less secretive, secretive than our attacks by the U.S. in the war on terror under the Trump administration? And do you think that that secrecy of those uh, of the war on terror under the Trump administration has actually led to his supporters believing that he has rolled back the war on terror? Well, I think uh, I think particularly in the last two years, um, I think even from when assessing. Um, alleged um, allegations of U.S. actions. I think you know one can make a, a reasonable uh, um, one can reasonably say that um, that U.S. actions have actually uh, decreased significantly. Um, 2020 um, saw saw the lowest, uh, um, most likely lowest. Uh, uh, number of U.S. Uh, U.S. strikes um, since since 2011. So um, uh, so to an extent, it, um, yes, there has been uh, a, a, a complete lack of, uh, um, of uh, um, transparency in terms of the in terms of what's going on. Um, you know, uh, the fact that um, only two strikes in the last year and year and a bit since July 2019 have been admitted to by US officials uh, and that's just you know that that's that's not Sencom or or um, uh, or necessarily defense officials um, uh, conceding it's, it's, it's more um, it's more from other US officials essentially essentially confirming uh, U.S. strikes, or, or the president at times, uh, in one particular instance, uh, confirming a strike. So, I think, um, I think yes, there has been actually. One can say maybe, 
strikes in Yemen have rolled back in, in, in recent times. But there has been a, you know, it's it's not been to the extent that, um, to the extent that um, uh, this administration would like to um, would like to claim. Um, the U.S. counterterrorism campaign is still ongoing. Just a few days ago, there was a there was an allegation of a um, of a U.S. drone strike uh, uh, in Yemen. Um, um, so it is it is still ongoing, and and yeah, it's 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 um, you know, I'm sure it, it it feeds into that perception that that you know uh, that the war on terror is over, or like it's or it's been completely rolled back under Trump. But um, the reality is very different on the ground. So, following 9/11, Mohammed, as you know, a lot of people back here in the United States, because they were uninformed, because they didn't realize what the United States was doing overseas, because they chose to be uninformed, chose not to know what the United States was doing overseas. Shortly after 9/11, everybody was asking here in the United States, "Why do they hate us? Why do they hate us?" To what extent do you think they, whoever they are, which is a horrible term to say to begin with anyway, uh, why do you, what, to what extent do they hate us because of civilian killings, the very kind of civilian killings that you're trying to reveal, you're trying to report on, and the United States tries to keep secret? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's obviously, uh, um, I think that's a whole other uh, discussion about uh, the motivations for uh, um, for jihadist organizations or jihadist groups and uh, and for individuals themselves, um, yeah, very possibly. I'm I'm, I'm sure you know uh, civilian deaths does drive recruitment. Um, it does drive uh, um, maybe anti-U.S. sentiments. Sure, um, it probably does. Um, I don't know for sure. I, I, I you know that's. I'm not. I'm certainly not an expert on that, but, um, uh, but, of course, you know, c- civilian harm is counterproductive to, is is not conducive to efforts, um, to, uh, um, to 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 undermine um, uh, radical groups. It, it it does give them that kind of fuel and ammunition, um, at least rhetorical fuel and ammunition. Um, so that's that is possibly a factor, yeah. One last question for you, Mohammed. We've been speaking with Mohammed Jumaili. He is Middle East and North African analyst and researcher and author, co-author of the Air Wars Report, eroding transparency U.S. counterterrorism actions in Yemen under President Donald Trump, which he co-wrote with Ned Ray. You can find out more about the report at airwars.org, and you can follow Air Wars on Twitter at airwars. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Mohammed, is what we call... The question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Our question from hell for you is for Yemen, for the people living in Yemen, for the civilians living in Yemen on the ground who are often victims of the U.S. drone war there. Does it matter who wins the election tomorrow night here in the United States? Uh, I mean, it. It remains to be seen, I guess. I mean, it, it remains to be seen in terms of uh, whether there is any improvement um, from from whichever side. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's all I can really say. <laughs> that's that's re- that's encouraging <laughs> the night before election night. So thank you very much, Mohamed. I really appreciate you being on. This report is spectacular. Our listeners should definitely check it out because the war on terror does continue. Again, check out the report, Eroding Transparency, U.S. Counterterrorism Actions in Yemen under President Donald Trump. Our guest has been Mohamed Al-Jumaili. You can find out more about uh, the report at airwars.org, and you can follow Air Wars on Twitter at Air Wars. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Great. Thank you so much. Live from capitalism. I'm sorry. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. And we are still looking for volunteer board operators who can show up regularly one, two, three or more times a month or even a week for our 10 a.m. daily show here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in the West Ridge neighborhood of Chicago. We are very flexible, and if you can only do it a week or once a week or a couple times a month, we can work around your schedule. 
If you are interested in this unique opportunity, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. This position does come with a very modest stipend, so you can keep that in mind as well. This is also your chance to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. If you have your own podcast idea or sound projects of any kind, you can get access to our studio and work on them there. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We're also looking for volunteers who can do some remote work, which we will be describing more in depth soon. And like I said, Martin, who suggested David Harvey as a guest here on this is how the email we read earlier he emailed us about working on the show as well martin writes hi chuck i'd like information on some of the remote jobs related to this is how i just want you to know ahead of time that i can't promise that i'd be able to help out <laughs> that's the kind of volunteering i like it would really depend on how much time i'd have to devote to the role thanks martin We will have more details again on that work very soon. Martin and everyone else who is interested in contributing online to This Is Hell, right now we are getting all our new board operators and producers trained up, and once the show is working and running smoothly, we'll tell you exactly the kind of work needed. What we do know is that it will have to do with archives of the show, maybe working on the website, uh, possibly doing transcripts, but we will be sharing all of that with you soon. Daphne, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is, what happens? (laughs) I just love how it's just what's happened, what happens, and then the electoral college map. (laughs) Yeah, and I wonder if Alex is starting to regret this question. I'm sure he is. (laughs) Okay, so uh, Mark A. says something like, Arg. (laughs) <laughs> All right, that's pretty close. Jack W. says, pre-orders for Obama's book Spike. Ugh. By November's end, <laughs> Amazon will deliver them by myriad drones. <laughs> John C. says, winner, Wall Street, loser, the people. Aaron B. says, nothing fundament- fundamentally changes. Aaron D. says, pot stocks are the new plastics. Sweet. Bra- <laughs> Brayden S. In this stupidest of all years where nothing good happens, Trump will lose the popular vote twice as badly as 2016 and still get the Electoral College. Now that's hellish. Um, And sorry to be a Harry Potter guy, but an Electoral College victory is exactly Biden wins, but Trump gets the snitch. Um, Garrett S. says nuclear holocaust. John K. says Trump loses, but buys everyone in the country a Big Mac and fries, restoring his credibility with the people. (laughs) Sweet. Jacob, oh, uh, the question is, what happens in a map of the Electoral College? Or or of the map of votes? Yes. (laughs) John K. says, no. Uh, Jacob J. says, despite an overwhelming victory, Biden concedes in the spirit of bipartisanship (laughs) And is immediately arrested by newly deputized QAnon agents. Awesome. Trump declares the swamp drained on Twitter. Sweet. Jesse W. says, is this a COVID map? (laughs) (laughs) Not an electoral map. Nice. Bradley R. A disaster of biblical proportions. Real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the sky, rivers and seas boiling. 40 years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. That is a quote directly out of the first Ghostbusters movie. I was afraid that's where that was going. (laughs) David B. says, Jeb. (laughs) <laughs> what happens, Jeb? Uck. Warren L. says, the world weeps while America bleeds. Again, the question is, what happens? Fe- Fabio A. says, Bezos purchases the federal government. Sweet. Jeremy T., I'm wagering it's going to be an exact repeat of 2016. Biden will win the popular vote, narrowly, and Trump will win re-election via the Electoral College. Yeah. Chad F. says Trump wins both popular vote and electoral college with heavy minority support. Deep State overthrows him exactly as they telegraphed with Transition Integrity Project. (sighs) Democrats continue to mistake Deep State. Coup for democracy. (laughs) (laughs) Paolo S. says it's still showing the blue screen. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, And... 
Jeff Dorchin says, uh, drone out ag agonizing legal battles over the results and how to count them, uprisings against state legislatures appointing Trump electors in defiance of their state's popular vote, and eventually chaos, fire, and desolation. Well, that sounds like fun. And that's all the rest? That's the rest we got so far? Yeah. So don't forget this week's question mail is what happens? Leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at thisishellradio. Email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. And rotten history, November 3rd, 1793. 227 years ago tomorrow, Tuesday, the pioneering feminist playwright Olympe de Gauges was executed in Paris and in the 19th century. I'm pretty sure being a feminist was a capital offense. Originally an enthusiastic supporter of the French Revolution, de Gouges had publicly denounced the French monarchy and its complicity in the slave trade, especially as manifested in the French Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue, now known as Haiti, but as an advocate of nonviolent reform, aligning herself with the moderate Girondin faction, she grew disillusioned with the revolution, increasingly criticizing the radical policies of the Jacobins and their violent reign of terror. Weird how the violent Jacobins are remembered. Not so much when it comes to the nonviolent Girondin. Above all, she angered the revolutionaries by calling out their disregard for the rights of women and children. In some 40 plays and in a series of public letters and pamphlets, she demanded the abolition of slavery, advocated race and gender equality, and argued for women to have the right to divorce and to vote. Mm, are you surprised she was executed in 18th century France? She also foreshadowed Thoreau and Gandhi in arguing that unjust laws should be nonviolently disobeyed. French political leaders and intellectuals were outraged that a mere woman would presume to make such public statements when Gauge's anti-slavery play called Black Slavery was staged in the French National Theater. It caused a sensation but was shut down after three performances. The play made her the target of death threats, which only increased after she proposed that the form of national government be decided by a referendum and expressed her own preference for a constitutional monarchy. That was too much for the Jacobins, who had her arrested for sedition. De Gouge was sentenced to death by the Revolutionary Tribunal and escorted to the guillotine to have her head removed from her body, which has got to be the nicest phrasing, the nicest wording of having your head cut off ever. Excuse me, my name is Olympe de Gauge, and I'm here for my head removal. In Rotten History, November 5th, 1916, 104 years ago this Thursday, some 250 members of the International Workers of the World, also known as the Wobblies, arrived by boat in Everett, Washington, with the intention of joining in solidarity with demonstrating workers at a local shingle factory who were on strike over wage cuts. A boat and workers organizing. I do not like the sound of this, as this is rotten history. As the Wobblies approached the dock in their boat, Wobblies on a boat. That can't be good either. They encountered a welcoming committee of some 200 local police, sheriffs, deputies, Hired thugs, freelance vigilantes, all backed by Everett businessmen. First, it was decapitation being referred to as head removal. Now Ronaldo is calling violent union breakers a welcoming committee. Don't know what's going on with Ronaldo. County Sheriff Donald McRae called out from the dock. Who are your leaders? The Wobblies laughed and shouted in reply, we all are. And that idea of a leaderless movement does not go over well with Johnny Law or his boss, the state, and their propaganda arm. The media. The sheriff told the Wobblies they would not be allowed to dock their boat. The Wobblies shouted back, the hell we can't. Then a shot rang out, of course, followed by some ten minutes of gunfire coming from both sides, but mostly from men on the dock, of course, as they always outarmed the workers. In all the chaos, the boat almost capsized, and an unknown number of Wobblies ended up in the water. By the time the boat backed away at top speed, twelve Wobblies were dead and twenty-seven wounded. On the dock, two cops had been killed and another twenty men wounded. Meanwhile, Everett police rounded up all the striking shingle workers and hustled them off to jail. Because cops do not serve workers, they serve the bosses. Back in Seattle, 74 of the Wobblies were soon arrested on murder charges, but were later acquitted after their lawyer convinced the jury that the dead cops on the dock had been killed by crossfire from their own fellow thugs. The identity of the man who had fired the first shot was never established. 
And like nearly every act of deadly violence against workers anywhere that has occurred ever, for any matter, for any reason, for any excuse, justice was never and will never be served. That's Rotten History, and this is how Daphne, can you tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday's show beginning at 10 a.m. Central Time? I know you can. I'm sure of it. I know you have that email in front of you. <laughs> Would you like me to tell people, or do you have it? Oh, it's in there somewhere. She's got it. Oh, it was the volume. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So, uh, who, yeah, yeah, yeah. who's on tomorrow's show? On Tuesday's show, Ruth Kina on her book, The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism. So that's awesome. Election Day, Anarchy, What Can Be Better? And on Wednesday's show? Uh, Hadas Tier on her book, A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics. So after we talk about anarchy the next on Election Day, the following day, we'll... Have a conversation about Marxist economics because we want to celebrate the American democracy this week here on This Is Hell. Daphne, thank you so much for producing today's show. Thanks, Turk. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to our guest today, Muhammad Jumaili. Thanks to Daphne Augustin for producing. Thanks to Alex Jerry for everything that you do. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. Thanks to Theron for putting this whole thing together. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Talk to you tomorrow. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>